Well, good morning. It's nice and warm in here, isn't it? <laughs> Turning your Bibles to Jonah, chapter 1, looking today at verses 12 through 17. Jonah 1, 12 through 17. One of the hardest parts of parenting young children especially is uh, knowing how to discipline them. This is not a sermon about that. But there is a parallel between human parenting and the way God parents us. Human discipline and God's discipline of us. The story of Jonah is basically the story of God disciplining Jonah to bring him into conformity with his will. We've looked at the first three verses couple weeks ago where we see that God sent Jonah, told him to go to Nineveh to preach, a foreign country, 500 miles northwest. Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't care about the Assyrians and their capital city of Nineveh, so he went and got on a ship to go to Tarshish, some 2,500 miles, basically the opposite direction, straight west. Well, so God sent a storm, verses 4 through 10. He sent a storm to stop Jonah. And the storm was so severe that even the the pagan sailors with him realized there there is something supernatural about this. So they called upon their gods, told Jonah to call upon his god, and eventually the, sh- the sailors cast lots trying to determine whose fault is this. And God used that process of trying to divine fault and put the finger on Jonah. And so uh, we come to a point where Jonah, the rebellious prophet, as well as the sailors, all realize that the storm is God's, is, is God's discipline of Jonah. Let's pick it up in verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you, Jonah, that is, to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, that is, the men didn't want to do it, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. So Jonah says, it is my fault. God disciplined Jonah until he took full responsibility for his, his sin. This, this is a dramatic story. It's kind of like coming back to this week by week here. It's like coming out of a commercial break to this incredible chaos and the storm and the shouting sailors and the crashing waves. and It's all because of what Jonah didn't do. And we have to ask ourselves, why would God discipline him like this? Is God venting? Is God taking it out on on him in, in some vengeful way? Why is God disciplining Jonah? I don't think Jonah at this point really understood God's motive or really even his goal. Why is the right question? when we're experiencing the discipline of God. Why? 
If we don't understand God's motive and goals in discipline, we will become either resentful and bitter against God, or we will despair and be depressed. Jonah chose despair. That's why he said, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Let's remove me, I am the cause. And so he despairingly takes responsibility, throw me overboard. In one sense, it might seem like Jonah is uh, like a sacrificial hero. Actually, he's simply depressed and ready to cash it in. He assumes that God is angry at him and trying to destroy him, and so he says, I'll just, I'll just kill myself. I'll do it myself. Jonah's view of God is basically one and probably two things. God must be appeased when he's angry. Do you realize he's actually buying into the pagan view of God? God has to be appeased. Our, our missionaries who are in primitive places find that even where there's not a knowledge of the true God, there is this sense that uh, when bad things happen, you have to appease the supernatural spirits in their case. So God must be appeased. The other is that we should punish ourselves when things go wrong. We need to, we need to punish or hurt ourselves. One reason among many that people harm themselves, whether it's uh, cutting or attempting suicide, one reason is that there is this perceived need to punish yourself for what you've done wrong or what you perceive that you've done wrong and the hurt you've caused others. That's where Jonah's at. He knew his sin. He knew his guilt. He knew the pain he was causing to these other sailors around him. And he just wanted it all to stop because he misunderstood God. He misunderstood God's purpose. He misunderstood God's... He did not remember God's grace, though he really knew it as a doctrinal reality. He did not know it in a personal reality. And so he had these false ideas of God, and he says, I'm going to just die Even the sailors knew this was a wrong approach, which is why in verse 13 they said, we we don't want you to die. They did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't because God is pressing his discipline upon them. Verse 14, then they cried to the Lord. So the sailors are crying to the Lord. Oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. So they realize, we're going to do this thing, but they pray. These three things. First of all, notice, who is the first one, who are the first ones to pray to the true God of Israel in the book of Jonah? It's not Jonah. It's the pagans. Jonah didn't plead for his life. Jonah didn't repent of his sin. Jonah didn't cry out to God. Jonah reminds us of ourselves so often where we own something and then we try to clean it up ourselves. We've got to fix this. And so often we avoid God when we need God the most. Most. 
because we don't view him right. We don't view him as, as, as gracious. When we've caused our own storm, we particularly can feel unworthy of calling upon him, not realizing that God may have allowed this storm to induce us to call upon him. He yearns for us to call upon him. So the sailors finally are the first ones to do it. First they say, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life, which we're about to do. So they are pleading for their lives, which tells you they recognize that God might be merciful and gracious. Don't let us die. They're trying to get on his good side, but they're assuming there might be a good side. Then they say, for taking this man's life, don't judge us for innocent blood. See, they realize that taking human life is wrong. Unless there is a legitimate human court declaring a legitimate capital crime, capital punishment, that's biblical. God gives mankind the sword quote-unquote. But otherwise, taking human life is wrong. Just as we've uh, mentioned in, in, in word and prayer this morning, the sanctity of human life, life when it comes to uh, abortion, beginning of life, or even end-of-life issues, taking human life is, is wrong. They realized that, but there is no court here, and so they didn't really have any excuse on one hand, but they felt compelled they got to do something. So don't let us die, don't judge us. And then thirdly, O oh Lord, you have done what you pleased. It's a prayer of submission to the will of God. When you think of it, they have taken a huge leap in their theology since the storm began. Because by now, they understand there is a true God over all the heavens. They understand that he is the creator God who made land and sea. They realize their own guilt and sin. They realize that God may be gracious and they are submitting themselves to the sovereignty of God. Isn't that quite the progress in their pagan minds? And it is, it is interesting that the disobedient prophet Jonah becomes the unlikely and the, the, almost, the really unwilling but yet effective missionary because God has compassion for the world. And so before, they ever, before God ever gets the message of truth to Nineveh, he has communicated it outside the walls of Israel to the, people on the, on the, to the sailors on the ship. How will God respond to this prayer? Verse 15, Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. So God graciously spares the sailors' lives when they throw Jonah into the sea. So the same God that started the storm stifled the storm. I'm assuming, by the way, it says it, it became calm, that it was like they threw him overboard and the water goes flat. Does water do that naturally? No, I mean, you know, a storm comes through and whips up Lake Michigan. storm can be way past, and it's nice and sun shining, the birds are chirping. But the, now the waves are coming, you know, they're crashing, because it takes a long time for this turbulent water to settle down. 
swells in the Indian Ocean, clear on the other side of the world, have been followed and recorded all the way to the coast of California. Uh, I read that uh, certain uh, swells or waves can travel some 6,000 miles away in 10 days. These sailors knew how water worked. And God had stilled the storm and the waves. The sea grew calm. Picture anybody else that did that in the New Testament? Remember Jesus? Disciples on the, on the, on the boat in the storm on the Sea of Galilee? And Jesus said to the storm, Peace! Be still! In other words, stop it! And the sea grew calm, and they know that that was supernatural because the disciples said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And the sailor had the same reaction. They're dumbfounded. If, if they had any doubt that it was the God of heaven, the creator God, who had started the storm, they certainly now knew that it was the God of heaven who created land and sea who had now stopped the storm. And so there's a profound moment of spiritual realization that God has saved us from perishing. So, that's how God responded to their prayer. How do the sailors respond to answered prayer? At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. Probably it's Jews that first read the book of Jonah once it was put together. What are they learning about God's compassion for the lost, for a world outside their borders? They have the example just in chapter 1 of their prophet Jonah, disobedient, rejecting even God's discipline, self-hatred, suicidal. In contrast to the the Jewish character in, in, in what has happened, the pagan sailors are the ones crying out to God and responding in worship. And so the message is being communicated, God has compassion for the world. If we have any more questions about the um, sailors' state of mind and what it was like to go through this, I think you can ask them someday in heaven, myself. Um, this fear of the Lord, now fear can just be awestruck at his power, afraid, and yet this is a worship context, and so this is like uh, where it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's, 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 a, real, it's a, a proper submission of worship before a holy God, and it says they made offerings and vows to him. Well, an offering and then vows. Uh, the basic difference between an offering in the Old Testament and vows is that offerings are sacrifices you're making now and vows are promises about future sacrifices. Vows are, I'm going to keep doing this, so it's not just momentary. It is, this is a new pathway for me. Uh, Bible scholar Bob Deffenbaugh wrote, A vow is practicing a kind of credit card worship. It is a promise to worship God with a certain offering in the future, motivated by gratitude for God's grace in the life of the offerer. 
The reason for the delay was that the offerer was not able at that moment to make the offering. So I can't, I can't make a sacrifice for the future, but I promise I will. It's a serious, somber vow or commitment. It to- makes total sense here because when you think about it, the, the men on the ship, did they really have many live animals to make a sacrifice? They, they did. We assume this happened on the ship. Maybe they had something that they could make a sacrifice, but they vowed. This is our, this is our new path. And so that makes sense to me that this would be a genuine conversion. If, if they didn't know enough about God and, and sin and sacrifice and salvation, at least we know that they could know. Because what had Jonah said about the source of his knowledge of the God of heaven? I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew. So they would know where to go. And when you think about it, what were the, these, these, these men on the ship going to do next? There's really no point in going on to Tarshish, is there? Because what had they done with all their cargo? Dumped it all over. They got nothing. So we assume they would go back to Joppa, where they started from. We've got to start over. We've got to get more cargo. We, we survived. That's great, but we got nothing. They go back to Joppa. Do you know, in Joppa is, is at that point... Uh, kind of just on the border of Philistia, Philistines, and Israel, they're only about 40 miles from Jerusalem. And so if these men in the sincerity of their heart are worshiping, want to worship the God of Israel, they can go to Jerusalem. They can hear the truth of God's word. And see, God has a way of handling all the details so he can show his compassion to an unbeliever. And he is, he is orchestrating lives like he did yours so that you would hear the gospel, and he's doing that all around us. It's exciting to think about. God graciously saved their lives and received their worship. So, was God also gracious to Jonah? Yes, he was, verse 17. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish in three days and three nights, the implication, alive. He survived, as we'll see. If you find it hard to believe that God could really use a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah would stay alive for three days and nights, just remember what we've learned about God so far in this book. Just in one chapter. God is the God of heaven. He is the creator of land and sea. He can start storms and he can stop storms. So he can keep a man alive inside a fish for three days. God is capable because you have to, you'd have to be, in, to deny that this really happened, you'd have to be intellectually honest and say that then absolutely nothing in Jonah is actually true and, and he didn't cause the storm because all of it is miracles. And then we see the example of Jesus himself in the New Testament referring to this and saying that what happened here, that Jonah was three days and nights in the, in the belly of the great fish, is similar to a sign or a type of Jesus who was, would be three days and three nights in the tomb and rise again. So if you can believe that miracle, you can believe this miracle. This is an act of God's grace. But Jonah thought he was going to die. Uh, Jonah seemed to welcome death. It's God that had other plans, better plans than Jonah. But God's discipline here continued with 
another form of misery. If the storm was miserable to think you're going to die, what's it like to live three days and nights inside a great fish? If you've ever cleaned fish, okay, just get that picture in your mind for a minute. Is there anywhere in there you would like to live for three days, <laughs> no matter how big it is? Okay, And we'll see that as we look at, at, at next chapter next week, but... This, this is a miserable experience, and yet we find it's actually God's grace. Think about that. He is going to be in abject misery for three days and nights, and yet that is the very thing that is going to save his life. Think of the surprise of Jonah expecting to die. See, here's the thing. Jonah assumed he was under God's judgment instead he was actually under God's gracious discipline. We assume that God is judging us in his wrath to destroy us when actually what God is doing is graciously delivering us through discipline. Jonah needed a, a radical doctrinal correction. God does that because of God's purpose. God's purpose is to restore Jonah. Pastor Nate and Pastor Seth are, are teaching a parenting class on Monday nights right now, and Seth mentioned to me that one of the things that they're talking about in discipline is the difference between discipline and punishment. There's a difference between discipline and, and punishment. If you go to a, a, a court hearing and you're found guilty, Ozaki County is punishing what you did. Parents in Ozaki County should be disciplining their children, unlike the courts that punish crime. Because you don't know that the courts of Ozaki County love you. Parents do. Parents do. That's the difference. And so God was, if, if God was punishing Jonah, could have died. Could have just killed him right there. In fact, Jonah could have been a very short book, one chapter, this could end, and Jonah died. Not much of a book, is it? Because that's not what God was doing. God was not simply angry, vengeful. God was wanting to restore him. See, God could have said, you know, Jonah, you don't want to do it? I'm done with you. Like God couldn't have picked some other prophet to say, okay, Jonah won't do it, I'll have you do it. But that's not what he did. Now, it could well be that there are times when, when God indeed, uh, when somebody refuses to do his will, God will go someplace else, but that wasn't God's plan for Jonah. And so God kept pursuing Jonah with his gracious discipline. This is a good point for us to think through this issue of God's Discipline. It's a word that is kind of uh, threatening sounding, the discipline of God. Turn with me for the rest of our time together to Hebrews 12. New Testament, Hebrews. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, chapter 12. We find in Hebrews 12 that God's discipline in our life is not an exceptional occurrence. Discipline is actually normal. 
Chapter 11 in Hebrews gives us this uh, hall of faith, we sometimes call it. It's a description of these men and women of the Old Testament who endured suffering faithfully. Then we come to chapter 12, the first few verses, and we find that as great of examples of faithfulness as those Old Testament people were, we should really keep our eyes on who? Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and be faithful to him and deal with the sin that entangles us. And, and then he says, you have not yet struggled to the point of death, okay? like Christ did. He went to the cross. He is the ultimate example you should put your eyes on. But he then, in a sense, is acknowledging, but you have things hard also, and in the first century especially, they did. So what should you do as you think of the examples of their faithfulness, keeping your eyes on Jesus and his faithfulness, that he endured the cross and the shame? Verse 5. You have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And then he quotes these classic descriptions of God's discipline from the book of Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone that he accepts as a son. So let's, let's think through this so that we can understand God's discipline. God's discipline, we will discover, is normal and constant. And one of the first underlying issues is simply this, that God disciplines us because he loves us as his children. That's what parents do. This is a baseline issue. He quotes uh, the Old Testament book of Proverbs. The word discipline that is used in Proverbs 3, the Old Testament word, Hebrew word, is a word that it, it means discipline in various ways, but there actually is like a, a core meaning of that, of that term, which is to bind or to restrict. Uh, use of like a, you, get, you, you wrap something in, in a net, You know what discipline really is? It's limiting someone. Deliberately restraining impulses that could harm them or others. Why would you do that? Because you're a parent and you love them. And so we have these stubborn, cute little sinners in our home. And so we deliberately restrict them because we are trying to help produce them to be kind and caring people. And so there's this process. Number one, we must model kind and caring in our own relationships that they observe every day. We model, then we teach and train them that they need to be this way, but then we also discipline them, we warn them, rather, of discipline. So modeling, teaching, and then Warning them, if you keep pulling her hair, (laughs) I'm going to, there'll be a consequence. So after we've modeled and taught and warned, what do we do when indeed they pull their sister's hair? Do you do nothing? No, you love them too much for that. Do you yell at them and not follow through? No, you love them too much take that approach do you pretend you didn't see it so you don't have to deal with it 
we've all been there. No, you love them too much to do that. Do you tell them, wait till dad gets home? No. You love them too much for that. Because you have modeled and taught and warned, you now will carefully, lovingly follow through. Because you love them. God loves us perfectly. None of us handles all this perfectly. God does. So is discipline just to correct sin? Let's keep reading. Endure hardship as discipline. Other uh, translations, it is for discipline that you endure, but the point is the same. Everything hard that we experience is essentially discipline. He's been talking about the hard things the Old Testament uh, heroes went through. He's talking about the hard things that Jesus went through. We go through hard things. Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. I think he's saying this. All hard things we must endure are part of God's discipline, not just discipline for sin. It includes discipline for sin, but not just. And then he says that every believer experiences this discipline of God. God's discipline is normal and constant. We are partakers or sharers of that discipline. So the question we began with, we've got to begin to answer Why does God discipline? The motive is love. What are some of the purposes of God? Why does he discipline? What is he trying to accomplish? I think there are several. What's common in every case is that, this is actually a quote from later in this passage, all discipline is painful, not pleasant. So if you want to know what he's talking about, think about hard things that you're going through. Unpleasant things is God's discipline. Some discipline addresses sin, very clearly. That's Jonah 1. God said, do it. He says, no, I won't. uh, Discipline addresses sin. Some discipline is there simply to mature us. I shouldn't say simply, but constantly to mature us. And so you have the thorn in the flesh that that, uh, Paul refers to, the Apostle Paul, where basically it's this, Paul had some, I think, physical uh, illness or disability or pain that he prayed that God would take away. Whatever it was, it's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor, I think, intentionally left vague so we can fill in the blanks ourselves, whatever we face. God allowed the, he, he had this thorn, and so it's, Paul says, I prayed earnestly, repeatedly, that God would take it away, and he received an answer from God. That's good that there's an apostle who, under biblical inspiration, has answered some of the why questions. And God says, no, I'm not going to take it away from you because my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to graciously produce something in you of strength where you are weak. This is to mature you so that you would be strong where otherwise you would be weak. And you know what Paul says? He says, 
okay, I will accept this weakness as being your discipline of me so that I can have the benefit of the spiritual strength you want to produce in my life. You see, that, that submission to the will of God. Is this because of some sin in Paul's life? No, it's not because of some direct sin correlation. That's what's different about Paul than Jonah here. Now, is it a part of Paul's a sinner in a sinful world? Absolutely. But see, God simply cared about Paul so much, he wanted to mature him, and he knew uniquely what it would be to address Paul. Maybe Paul was strong-willed, and he really needed this particular issue. So what was God accomplishing by causing the storm, by allowing the thorn in the flesh, whatever it was? All discipline trains us to serve. Last week we looked at Ephesians 2.10, describing the intended result of God in saving us by grace apart from works is, verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God had planned from eternity past that we would do them. So God wants to use us in ministry. Is ministry easy? <laughs> is serving others easy? I mean, you'd think, man, God, I'm doing God such a big favor, surely. This is going to just go... Not at all. It goes, ah, because it's people. And so there's hurt, and there's conflict, and there's barriers, and there's problems. Why? Because God is refining us. And so whether it's because of a specific sin or because he's maturing us, we know it's all meant so that we would serve him better. God is at work to Make us useful. That's what he was doing in Jonah's life. To make him useful. I think we need to ask ourselves, what are we we going through that's hard? And then just assume it's God's discipline. Do you have to know if it's Jonah stuff or Paul stuff or serving stuff? It's just stuff. It's, it's, It's what God in his... Wisdom, love, and sovereignty is allowed in our lives. Example of kids. You know, it's hard to be a kid. They have hardships on their level, don't they? Parents cause most of it. You have to get up when I tell you to get up. And you're going to brush your teeth. Instead of playing with your friends and playing on your screen, you have to get ready for school and you're going to go to school and you're going to come home from school and you're going to do your homework. And then after that, I'm going to have you do some chores. And I'm not going to let you have that much screen time. I'm not going to let you have that much sugar. And when you do that to your sister, you're going to get disciplined. Life is hard. And we as parents are making it hard all the time for them. It's called discipline. Is it because of specific sin? No, it's because of a specific goal. We want them to be kind and caring and mature individuals. What's hard about being a teenager? What isn't hard about being a teenager? Stuff is hard. And so there's there's, there's issues with your peers and you get get hurt and there's there's, there's the parents that 
don't understand and there's the school and the grades and disappointment and in our activities or music or sports or what all this stuff is so hard but someplace a wise grandpa is going I know it's hard but this is exactly how you're going to become an adult you go through all this stuff and then there's adults and we're going through whatever we're going through that's hard the job is hard the finances are hard Just about every stage of life, finances, parenting, it's it's hard. Marriage is always hard. Health gets increasingly hard. What is it? God's discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. Whether you know it's Jonah stuff, and if it is, confess and deal with that sin. Repent. Or maybe it's, it's Paul stuff. All of it, though, is so that we would become productive, useful in the plan of God like he planned. And, and that's what the rest of this passage is about. God, God's discipline produces the best things. Verse 9, moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? That's what Paul did. He submitted to what God had in mind. First issue is that God teaches us to respect and submit to him through all of these things. We teach our children, you've got to learn to respect me. Because they don't respect you as a parent, they won't respect their their teacher, they won't respect their boss, they won't respect the police officer, and life's going to be really hard. In the process, we are teaching them to respect God, in which case, we will live when we learn to respect God. And, 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 and to, to live is probably like abundant life that Jesus talked about, John 10.10. 10. It can be simply live as, as opposed to die, because if you, if you keep going on this path and you live a wild life, you can, you can die of drugs or alcohol or traffic accidents because you ignore the rules. You know, you'll live longer, but you'll live better if you submit to God. Our, father disciplined, our fathers disciplined us, verse 10, for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That is one of the biggest benefits of all. God wants us to become more holy like he is. Holy is, is good because, first of all, it honors and glorifies God so that we are in alignment with God. Holy is also a, a wonderful way to live because, I mean, guilt is the biggest joy killer. He wants us to be holy for our good. So note verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God wants our pain, whatever it is, to produce a spiritual maturity. His term, this, this, this term literally is peaceful fruit, which is really righteousness. Peaceful fruit, which is righteousness. A sense of, we will, we will have peace in living righteously. But it involves a, an acceptance of hardships willingly so that we can become productive spiritually. It's like, 
okay, this hard thing in my marriage, this hard thing at, the, at, at school, this hard thing is about God shaping me so that I can be holy, productive, effective for him. God is bringing Jonah to that place and he's bringing us as well. Whatever is going hard for us right now, just remember, God's in the process of doing something very good. Let's pray. We all know the hard things that we are facing. It's, it's what we uh, think about. It's what we try to fix. It's what we complain about. But it's what you're doing. Heavenly Father, I pray you would help us to embrace your discipline in all, in all of its shades that it would accomplish all of your purposes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.